0: You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.
1: Welcome to episode 67 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, a host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have a coaching legend of the game, a career that spanned over fifty years and is still going. Uh, his name is Dave Titmus, um, otherwise known as Coach T. Started off his days uh, back, uh, well, going back in his in his early twenties, uh, coaching basketball. Um, after a, a leg injury, saw him make the switch from from playing to coaching, which we'll hear all about. And since then has pretty much done it all, whether it's coaching in the National League, back in the league's heyday uh, with Ovaltine, Hemel, Hempstead um, to the BBL uh, with Worthing Thunder and Thames Valley. Uh, and of course, also spending time um, on a different side of the game with the Great Britain Wheelchair Basketball Association, coaching the GB uh, Paralympic team at uh, Paralympics, as well as World Championships. He's got a wealth of experience um which we went into in all of this whether it is with the clubs or also with the national teams where he did times with, with England and uh, GB he's won titles uh, he's won medals uh, you name it he's done it so super privileged to get him on the show this week and uh, it was a very very good enjoyable conversation which I'm sure anyone especially aspiring coaches will enjoy listening to before we do get into this week's show please take two seconds to check out our Patreon account patreon.com forward slash hoops that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash h there you can see up to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you'd like to help us do the work that we're doing. We cannot do it without your support. Please go and check it out and consider giving the price of a cup of tea, a cup of coffee every single month. If you're listening on iTunes, please take two seconds to give us a rating and review. Uh, We just reached 80 uh, ratings, so it's much appreciated. If you can add a review in there as well, it would be even more appreciated. If you're watching on YouTube, please give us a thumbs up and a comment. Uh, Let's get some discussion going. If you want to reach out to me privately, drop me an email, sam at hootfix.com, or you can hit me up on every single social media platform at Hootfix. Anyway, here is this week's show with Dave Titmus, Coach, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. So uh, there's a lot, to, a lot to cover in this. Obviously, you've, you've been involved with the game for decades upon decades, about 50 years uh, as a coach. Um, and the place to always start is the beginning for me. Um, so I'd love to hear sort of your, your early exposure to basketball, how you first got involved uh, with the game.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I was a um, 15-year-old. I was living in Surrey and I was soccer mad. I was a goalkeeper. I was a county goalkeeper level. But then we moved to Boreham Wood, my family, and I went to school there. And the PE teacher, would you believe, was a guy called Tony Smith, who um, was the GB Olympic coach in 1964. Um, and I saw the game. I was soccer mad. But then I, I, I just saw this game that I'd never seen before. Up until that point and I don't know Sam but something happened something happened and within six weeks two months I never played soccer again and within a year and a half I I was in what was then the schoolboy national team we had a I don't know what it must have been about under 18 or something uh, as a player um, but the Tony's influence um, he was a fundamentalist and um he his enthusiasm i think you always look to figures in your life don't you that that really influenced you and and that's how i um that's how i got introduced to the game and i I just love playing i don't know whether being a goalkeeper i had hands so it but it was just something I, i i just have never been i can still smell the gym i can still smell the leather ball you know amazing
1: and so there was obviously a transition at some point from playing to coaching. You know, how, how far yeah. did you take the playing and at what point did the transition come to coaching? I'm pretty sure it was an injury that ended up sort of leading to the first exposure to coaching. But can you kind of go through that with us? Yeah, that,
0: exactly. Um, I, I played at sort of county league level for, um,
1: for, for a little while. Obviously, after I
0: left school, um, I went into journalism. Um, that was my first job but I still had this inkling basketball so I I, I played a little a little but I got a dreadful knee uh, injury um which would probably these days be like a maybe a, a, a season ending but you'd come back from it sort of thing but in that period my my kid brother john his his um pe teacher asked me to go in and coach their school team <laughs> and again uh, talk about experiences that 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 changed something happened there I coached um, and I you know coached what I knew from having played under Tony Smith at school and it was then that it's kind of sparked I realized that that I loved it I love teaching I love coaching um, I think in some I call myself a teaching coach and that experience then, although I was able to recover and I missed about you know in county league sort of stuff as a player, but coaching was it. That, that's all I wanted to do, and that started me on a, a path. I realized I was going to have to study the game, I needed to know more. The game was not like it is today in this country, by the way.
1: So, but that's how, it, that's how it happened. And so, so how old were you when you, when you went into your, your brother's school to, to coach? I must have been uh,
0: 22, something like that. So
1: pretty young. And at that point, to, you decided to, y- this is what you wanted to do. Yeah, yes. I And I was aware, actually, that I
0: was young as a coach, you know, because I was coaching people older than me, quite, like at the club level. I was coaching people older than me uh, and so on. But but I, uh, you know, I had a sound footing in the fundamentals, but I, I had... I didn't understand the bigger the other elements of the game which obviously I went on to to study so um uh, i mean i'm seventy four now so that
1: seems a long time ago you know so yeah. so you're twenty two years old you've decided you know you've come across coaching and you've decided that this is you know this is your calling and this is what you love to do Absolutely. how did you How did you approach it like what were the steps that you took as a young aspiring coach to kind of try to i guess improve improve your knowledge improve your skills uh, put yourself in a position to be able to succeed as a coach?
0: Well, at that time, because things changed later, but I think we're going to go on and talk about that. But at that time, the basketball um, association, bless them, uh, were were the the process for basketball. People were evangelical about the game; had to be evangelical. So they created this sort of system of. Uh, Having somebody it was Brian Coleman actually going going around all over the country. I think he did it for about 10 years running courses Running courses different levels of courses, but most of the people doing those things uh, tutoring um, and I got myself on everything I could absolutely everything I could they were from teaching backgrounds predominantly so you learned a lot about group management and Teaching styles, coaching styles, um, about the simplicity of the game. Uh, well, a game that was simple on one level, but had complexities on another, you know. But you did, that, that's what I got from those things. But nothing about, I, I never learned how to be a professional head coach, for instance, you know. Uh, but what it did do was uh, make me understand the value of practice of preparation, um, of creating an environment, how you create an environment. So I'm very grateful, actually, to those. And, and of course, I, I went on to, to tutor, well, I don't know, it's over 1,500, I think, um, uh, coaches uh, in various levels of, of coaching awards. Things have changed and improved since then, though.
1: When you talk about sort of the lay of the land of the game um, in that era, when you, when you first started getting involved with the coaching side, could you see a route to becoming a professional coach, or did you accept that it was going to have to try and be something that you would do on the side around having a, a full time job as well?
0: No, you're absolutely right. No, I, um, I mean, uh, as a as a player, uh, I mean, my. My uh, Tony had put me into the national, put me into the Bournemouth Bullets in the original National League, about a six-team, uh, a 6 team league. And when you, when I looked at that, and, and there was nobody, uh, or very, I can't think of many people who were playing, uh, coaching professionally in that, in those early, in you know, early days. There may, may have been, but I, honestly, no. I, I, I thought um, that I would hang in here. You know, that I that I would try and do it. Um, but actually, for many years from my coaching career, I've often had to do other things, even things I didn't want to do. You know, uh, even when I got into the game professionally um, in order to coach, you, you know, um, and, it, and it's still today. I'm, I, I'm, I'm saddened, actually, by by um, some of you know some really talented guys looking around to say where could i coach and i felt that i you know that maybe going to the going to the states because we all looked to the west in those days you know for the for um, development in the game that maybe that was going to be um a route but i was still caught up in the way the game was well frankly it was growing it was growing pretty well I mean so that it looked like there may be opportunities and
1: indeed of course that's that's what happened so what was your 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 first uh, sort of involvement with a club on a club level coaching um, and kinda I guess you know dipping your toes in the water on that side of things Well,
0: that that, in terms of National League level, really, which was the, you know, the burgeoning National League, it was very competitive, you had a tournament to even get into it that you had to win. But that was with uh, a club that we set up at Hemel, I was I came into Hemel, uh, called Hemel Lakers, we were originally I like they were called something else Hemel Hornets, I think. But um, when we got into National League, I liked the name Lakers. Anyway, the committee decided we would be Hemel Lakers we played in um we coached uh, i coached them in the london league because we we were too good for the county league sort of thing um and, and we got into the national league division two i should never forget it because we had to play in a qualifying tournament um which was um you know fantastic and the national league was the aspiration at that time and then we had uh, the most amazing um uh, quality, um, promotion game at at Hemel against Leeds, against actually being coached by Dave Ransom, of course, who eventually was my assistant uh, as a coach. Anyway, we we, we had fourteen hundred people at that, at that time in that gym, and we and we uh, got into Division One, and that was when things really took off in in terms of. From that point to, the, to getting the old team sponsorship and over a period of about seven years, I mean, I always talk about, talk about being thrown in at the deep end, but we went from playing at that level to playing in the European Correct Cup. With a fully professional club in about seven years. Wow! It, it, it was an amazing, uh, an amazing time and experience.
1: So when, when we're talking about timelines, this was um, sort of mid to mid to late seventies, going into the into the early eighties, right? Um, yeah. You know, when I speak to people from kind of that era and they speak about the. They speak so highly of where basketball was culturally, um, you know, within England, sort of the yes. crowds, the, the level of sponsorship that could be raised, you know, Channel Four being involved, all, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. What do you think about it? Like, it's interesting when I when I look at the game today, and you know, people just say basketball uh, is is perceived as an American sport in England. You know, culturally, it can't it can't penetrate into the mainstream media and stuff. But it seems like back then it did. So it's like what. Which means it's possible in England, like it's possible because football still existed back then. You know, cricket still existed back then. So it's like, yeah, what was it back then that was different to what we have today and what we've had for the last couple of decades, where it's been very hard for basketball to sort of break through into into being a little bit more mainstream.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, well, obviously the TV deal deal with Channel Four was enormous. I mean, that 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 every Monday night. There was a live game from something when we had them at, at Hamill. Um There were there were and, and also um, there were a lot of personalities um, on the floor um, that I think that people began to identify with, and it was the first time we saw uh, moving out of the mainstream. I, my thought at that time was: listen, all all we need now. Is to get on the back pages of of um, the national of national press. Then we know we, we would have arrived, but we were kicking against the um, traditional sports: soccer, cricket, um, rugby. And I, and I, I think it had a sort of a novelty, a novelty value, but a lot of good people um, were involved uh, in marketing and pushing the game, and there wasn't element that if you could just get them in the gym if you get people into the gym the reaction was always the same oh i never knew it was like that oh that was fantastic you've got a scoreboard with ticking down two scores go all of the things the exciting things about the game Uh, the family orientation you know uh, uh, in terms of audience and i think soccer was going through i I might be wrong, wrong about this but my recollection was hooliganism and those sorts of problems you never had that in in uh, in in basketball so it was a it was a clean spot i think it was difficult to put onto television i think you couldn't i suppose like a lot of sports it, it's difficult to capture the sort of atmosphere of, of what a game is 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 really like when you sit courtside versus watching it on a on a screen, obviously, NBA and EuroLeague, they've taken it to another level now. Um, but at that time, and do you know, I, I, I've, I've read countless accounts, even some of my former players, you know, Bobby Kinzer and, um, well, the late um, Larry Dassey now, and, and uh, people I was involved with at that time who, who say exactly the same. There were some terrific players around, but the players that would estab- would be established now, um, I mean Joe, Joe Pace I, I recruited a guy an NBA player an NBA centre I don't think it's, I don't think he's ever been well the BBL's a guard forward lead now you know but the BBL I'm not sure I'm answering your
1: question I'm wondering no <laughs> no no it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all interesting um, yeah do, 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 do you think that if 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 uh... The BBL was able to recruit that calibre of player. We're talking about, you know, players that have just been drafted or players that have very you know, at the moment we do get obviously London Lions have just signed DeAndre Liggins who who played in the NBA yeah. just four or five years ago. But if we were able to get sort of players of that level cl- close to their prime rather than at the tail end of their career, irregardless of them being American as opposed to British, do you think that would actually because the standard of play is so much higher and maybe more exciting that could potentially help basketball break through? Do you think it is all about the product that's on the floor in terms of the talent of the players?
0: Well, I mean, that's always been... I'm conflicted about this. I just thought, actually, about Harvey's, well, Harvey Knuckles, a second-round draft pick player. I went to Los Angeles and we recruited him to Hemel. So they're, they're, they're serious. You know, they were serious uh, players. But I'm conflicted about this because... Um, the argument is that if you have American players, it's more, more exciting, more, more personalities, there's a novelty um, area. And to win, um, certainly in, in National League, for instance, to win, uh, you, you quite often have to have you know at least two, two, um, two American players. But I'm conflicted because of the, my national team experience, which I know we'll talk about. But I, I wonder if, if we went the other way. <laughs> You know, would would um, unless we could get to a level. But I, I, I wonder if, supposing we restricted imports quite dramatically, uh, and had and re- were able to retain some of the, I mean, just outstanding British uh, talent um, that has that's been here, but be be good enough, be be stable enough and commercial enough to be able to, instead of them going to Europe. Perhaps not yet stopping them go to the NBA, they're going to go to the NBA then, you know, that's a big payday. But, uh, you know, if we if we did that, then I, I think the British, um, I don't think it would affect crowds. I, I, I think I think we've got athletic guys, you know, uh, I I think it's overrated that that thing. And, I, and and it would all be British, British guys, you know. I think there's a parallel with soccer. I'm not, I'm not into soccer, but, you know, people talk about England, you know, about the Premier League and the, the, how foreign, many foreign players there are. Um, and I love American players, by the way, because I've, I've been, I've had some wonderful, wonderful players um, and personalities. Uh, but they are concerned, aren't they, I think, about the then the performance of the national team. And in basketball's case, the national team success, then everybody knows it. Everybody says it. National team success turns things around it domestically. Hockey, you know, look at hockey, look at netball, look at what netball's done. Um, look at any sport that is suddenly successful. There's always a uh, and it's the, the ridiculous thing is that basketball is an incredible game for this country you know, it's indoors, (laughs) it's warm, you know, it's family orientated, it's exciting, all of those things. Um, But I would want to see British players. Um, Why can't we have a domestic league predominantly made up of British players? Maybe have a a two-player rule.
1: And I I include passport players in in that, by the way. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, it does seem like over the last few years, there's definitely a greater presence of of sort of national team guys and high level British players that are playing playing domestically for the first time, and yeah, obviously with with Brexit happening, um, that could also sort of force force the hand a little bit in terms of uh, bringing bringing more guys home potentially. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of kind of how how it how that all plays out. So you know when we're talking about sort of the Hemel Lakers and then then uh, become an Oval Team Hemel Hempstead, you said there that over the course of the seven years. You basically went from uh i guess amateur to prof- to a sort of fully professional setup. what yeah. would you attribute that um, acceleration uh, of the development of the club to like how did it happen so quickly
0: well i we had um, we put together teams you know we had fantastic uh, volunteers uh, that we had built but we couldn't you couldn't do it without money and so uh the, the, the two biggest things, obviously, were that we began to attract sponsorships. Um, I mean, the smaller sponsorships as well as uh, Oval Team, which at that time was um, was a perfect, um, um, perfect. Uh, what's the word? Partnership. Um, but but also we raised a lot of money. We created and set up a lottery that we ran and developed across the whole of the south of England. And if I tell you that over a period, we're we're talking about about five million pounds being raised and and half it went back in in prizes and so on. But uh, but a a, a lottery that was almost disassociated with the club because we we you know, we got a um, newsagents to to stock it all over. We had full time staff running it. Um, we got the idea from what was then Sunderland, I guess, a precursor of Newcastle, but Sunderland and, uh, and that was, it was fundraising,
1: you know, fundraising. So we had resources. So, so what you actually set up your own lottery, like a, like the national lottery, like people would buy yes. tickets with a chance of winning a lump sum of money. And then you could take profits out of that, which would help fund the club.
0: Yeah, it was very heavily re- regulated, but um, that it was it was amazing because this was before the national lottery. Yeah, that that killed a lot of these type of lotteries, club lotteries, you know. But of course, the football club we had Watford up the road. Um, of course, they were running these sorts of things, but but we had uh, um, we designed our own own um, brand of lottery that. Wasn't just linked it was linked to the club sort of technically, but we realized that the way to To, uh, to raise money was to develop it across the country. We, we 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 had agents all over the south of england I mean we had people going around in cars, picking money up, you know, and then, and then of course we, we began to sell more and more um, And we were selling a lottery out in, in a week at one oh. stage, which was incredible, um, so that amount of money allowed. I mean, myself, we had a, a full-time staff. Uh, Roger Roger Yap, who's a statistician, well-known statistician, now a terrific administrator. He came, you know, was able to come in full time. I was full time, but of course, I wasn't full-time coach. It it was all around again. In order to coach. I had to work on the commercial side, and I had a background in journalism and and marketing to a certain extent. So, so what, but it was
1: what, on amazing. The, on, really. on the day to day, what were kind of your roles? You know, outside of outside of the coaching, what what other things would you find yourself doing? Um, it, I mean, it was it was running the commercial side. I,
0: I the company was I was the managing director, so called of the of the the company. And uh Roger took care of the of the basketball um, the administration and um, and also obviously we were recruiting uh players, but I was involved in the commercial aspects. Uh, a bit like Bob Bob Hope was, you know, at Birmingham Birmingham. I mean he was far better marketeer than me, that that's for sure. He was he was incredible. But um yeah, I so it was um that was it during mostly. And then we had the, we were bringing in pro, you know, we had pro players. So we, then we had a practice. So I'd leave the desk, get changed, go and practice, come back to the desk. It, It was, it was crazy because it, it, at the same time I was, I was learning to be a coach. You know, I was still learning to be a better coach, but I knew that coaching was what I loved. So, um, It it was it was really, really hard time, but very, very exciting because, I mean, the first Channel 4 game we had, we locked out 600 people. I mean, they were queuing round the round the center. I should never forget that. And and we had a bank of seating then that went from the floor to the very back of the sports sports hall. We had seating at each end and across the other side of the floor. I mean it was we broke the regulations, you know the fire regulations regularly it 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 was it I think the point was that to to compete because of you know the the iconic club was Crystal Palace, everybody wanted to try and emulate whether i mean they what they did was absolutely for basketball was fantastic, you know, it was brilliant, and some of the players and so on that came out of that period um I absolutely admire um to, to this day, you know. But they I think the the um the so the model, the basketball model we were trying to do that. Then we were trying to decide were we in the entertainment business. And of course when Bobby came in, he, he brought a crowd in on his own, you know, <laughs> Bobby Kinzer. He he was so charismatic and and such a damn good player. I didn't even realise what I had there as a, as a coach, you know. And of course, a wonderful Larry dassey, i mean the late larry dassey he he um um he, he just taught me so much you know I, I learned a great deal from from these guys dave Shelley was the, the one of the best english guards ever you know at that time so it was it was a and of course with channelport and there was a real i really had the sense that one day I would be the coach and we'd have a a commercial director, manager, in all the commercial side of the club, like a football club, would grow, and then the, the the sports hall would be too small. So we needed better facilities, and obviously that's what's happened to a certain extent in other parts of the country, isn't it? You know, you look at Newcastle, look at London playing out of the copper box. Oh, it's amazing, you know, from when you look at it through the lens of the eighties, late eighties.
1: Yeah. The um so, what age were you during this during this period when you were, were coaching these guys in in national league? Uh, I'd have to check that. Give me uh, a roundabout, just a roundabout. It doesn't have to be a specific.
0: No, no. I so I by now must have still been pretty young. My, I was quite. Oh yes, I was. I think thirties. Thirties. You know, 30s. 30s, and I, I was on a real. I'm in mean, a steep learning curve. To put it put it mildly, you know and i and i couldn't absorb it the the sort of commercial work and um, promotional work and stuff that was all kind of like a bit of an interference you know <laughs> but i knew that i had to do it to to uh, uh, and apart from one one period which i think we'll come on to um it it was something that i pretty much had to do you know but yeah i was young and but i was thrown in there and that, and then i'm I'm, we're playing Real Madrid's second team in the korak Cup. Come, on, I mean, come on! Uh, in this, in this, uh, their training facility was a ten thousand seater. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, it was. Um, I, I was learning every day, and I was a sponge. I, I, I really was a sponge, and I think that was when I first realised that coaching wasn't just exes nose. It was about the environment but most of all it was also about leadership and I think that 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 you know saying having a vision and saying this is where we're going great on the club side and more and more people got involved with us you know um but on the coaching side it it, I was having to learn to do that you know how to be a leader
1: I was going to say like what were your resources to kind of learn the game because of course if, if you're already the head coach it's not like you're working under someone and they're kind of and you're sort of watching them and, and picking up things from them like you've got to obviously actively go out and, and seek the information I, I assume so what was your process for actually developing yourself as a coach and uh upskilling yourself i guess yeah no you're right you're certainly right about that quite a lot of
0: coaches in my recollection is quite a lot of coaches you know joe, uh, joe welton danny Danny Palmer. Um, there were there were many others. I'm sorry, my I'm 74, Sam. Come on, you know the memory. Uh, but there were a lot of American coaches I was going up against. And to be absolutely frank, I I, I would I would try and talk. Obviously, what on Saturday night you're playing against them, you know, there's an element of that. So um, and ironically, didn't look to Europe so much. You know, it was always west. Um, But that was the start of of my idea that, uh, well, to get better, uh, I'd been going to the States for um, recruiting, like there was a summer league in L.A., uh, which I think may even still be operating, where where I actually recruited Harvey Harvey Knuckles from, from the Lakers. So I would be going over there, and that was rich with coaches. Pat Riley was sitting in the in the bleachers you know i remember him in front of me uh, before he became the head coach there um but it was a rich um s- a source because i would <laughs> talk to anybody i could um uh, you know about about the whole the whole thing what they would do in the coaching process uh, development of philosophies but then i formalized that a bit later um uh, actually, actually, even during that time now, I come to think of it, because uh, I love the college game. I love the the um, the NCAA situation uh, more than the NBA. Actually, um, I remember I went to India. So anyway, what I used to do was to make contact with the head coaches. And this guy from England, who you know, <laughs> basketball? Do they play it over there? You know, uh, and I was calling them up. And to be honest, I'm there's such generosity I would go to programs and they would let me be a fly on the wall and I would sit down I remember I was really interested in in the ideas or the idea of controlling another team defensively you know with pressure and uh, at that time UNLV under Tuck Canyon were was were, they were famous for their pressure pressure defense and I went out to um, he, I, I called him up, and he he, he invited me out there, and I stayed out on the campus. I went through every practices. I went to games. I went on a scouting trip, but he had a young assistant called Tim Gergovich, who became uh, is now in fact he may still be in the NBA, but one of the greatest player development coaches. And they had an old guy. They had Bud, Bud Presley from Menlo College who was a defensive specialist. And my God, I, I, that, I, the first practice I went to at UNLV, the first hour and a quarter, I'm sitting up in the bleachers, I just landed and went straight to UNLV. I'm sitting on the bleachers watching his first practice. Do you know, for the first hour and a quarter, the basketballs never came out. It was all movement fundamentals. Unbelievable, you know. And then I'm thinking, well, I can't do that in England. <laughs> you know, when I go back to England, guys got to learn to pass, shoot, and dribble. You know, um, but of that time, um, my experience at Indiana, I think this is well well known. You know, with Bobby, uh, with Coach Knight, I think uh, going to that, going there was the first time I understood the idea of of reading he's the greatest teacher in my opinion or one he was one of the greatest teachers uh, of the game and and i learned uh, about reading and and uh, and his his whole end of motion offence was people talk about motion offence now but you know the way he coached it was sensational never ran a, a set play in in, all, in he'd won three national championships you know so it was a combination of those things And also taking youth teams out there. I I took a team, um, a youth team out. We played every um, team, every high school team in the, I can't remember, the the, the Washington, D.C. area with DeMatha, teams like DeMatha, St. John's, um, famous people. You know, we all had like Danny Ferry, and people like that were playing on them. We didn't win a game until the last game. We actually won a game. We won one, one game against these guys. But, of course, I was talking to coaches. Um, Morgan Watton is a legend, you know, uh, in, in there. And I'm sitting there in a cafeteria, you know, talking to him. And, and he's, he, he helped me. Why would, you know, why? I, he was so generous. We didn't get the ball over the halfway line in the first quarter against them. Against a matter, and I had voices in in this country say, well, why are you taking kids out there just to get thrashed? you know um, but I balanced against that uh, the Lloyd the Wear Rebels program, which I think we're going to talk about, but uh, we went out and to the to North, uh, UNC to North Carolina. and again, you know, coach Kay at Duke and um, Dean Smith, so we were able to watch practices. And I was able to talk to assistant coaches. I was able to see the way Coach K spoke to, his, uh, spoke to his players. It was around the Christmas period. And I remember him worrying about the fact that there was going to be a break from practice. But the contrast between watching him and he still calls. He's, Bobby Knight is the only coach he calls coach. The only coach, because he obviously played under him and he still he still calls him that but his coaching i realized that coaching styles you get it done with different coaching styles he wasn't bobby knight he didn't ate bobby knight completely different calm cool. <laughs> you know work with the guys and then say All right, film room we go to the film room and then 10 minutes later they come back
1: da, 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 da. and you go to coach knight practice and <laughs> that, was a, that was a little different just, just like you say there like you know t- different coaches have got very different styles different philosophies things they focus yeah. on things they want to be known for or whatever or want their teams to be known for at what point did you sort of I guess decide upon a overriding philosophy that you'd want to how you'd want to coach your teams how you'd how do, how you'd want your teams to play how how did you kind of go about I guess picking the bits that you like from different people and then putting it into, with your own adding your own flavour to it to come across to come up with your own style of, of coaching
0: yeah, that's a great, great question, because, of course, even now, I still I'm still a student uh, of the game. And I, I did make my mind up that I was always going to try and stay current. But I think it was forming and I was very influenced in the early days by by the um, the college experiences you know, and the trips to and high school. Um, and actually, we played a junior college as well with one of my original junior teams. Um uh, which was interesting, but I think they were really firming up, um, at, and there was a season. Uh, actually, I, I coach Brunel. I remember this so well. I, I they had been in Division Two and won promotion. The and for some reason the the, the coach wasn't returning, and um, uh, they they I, I I was appointed there. Um, and then MD coach Dunning joined me a little bit later in the, in the season. But in that year, um, the, again, something happened in terms of my philosophy that a lot of things came, to, uh, came together and I was beginning to feel. Uh, and to me, it was about how do you get um, a group of players to realize their potential? And it was in that year. It was a team that was expected to go up and come down. That that's what I was taking over. That's what I was told. They're going to go straight back down again. Um, you yeah, know, but I had two Adele Roberts and Brian Calabro, two two wonderful guys, uh, two, two two Americans. Martin Walters, um, sadly, has died now. Uh, Phil Ralph, kid out of Avenue under Lenny Lenny Hoy, um, and Dave Yuman, a, a workman like I think he had a sort of connection with Crystal Palace, but um, it was that team. Um, and what we achieved, um, ending up going to the going place, and this was the era of Kingston, you know. Um, coach,
1: coach Cadle was there. This was 1985 and, 86, right? Yeah,
0: 85 yeah. 86. That's it. Um, I have trouble <laughs> remembering so, but it was, yeah, around about there. And, um, of course, uh, Portsmouth had a fully pro team. I think Dan was there, Dan Lloyd, and so on, and Danny, um. Who was the coach? I'm trying to remember the coach, but the 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 whole thing came down to one game for me in terms of realizing the potential of the, of that group. I thought we played the right way. A lot of my ideas about subtle changes in defense, um, about simplifying offense, about reading uh, on offense, all kind of came together, and I I remember. I remember this because we over-celebrated it, to be absolutely honest with you, but we put on a Friday night, Portsmouth, who was a fully pro team, Joel Moore, you know, players of that, they had a brilliant center, I can remember his name now, but Colin Irish and Dan and so on, that that sort of era. Uh, they were in Portsmouth and they were playing Manchester, who I think were then linked to Manchester United. you know they had a brief spell? Yep. Uh, With Joe, Joe Weldon was the coach, a terrific coach, with Jeff Jones and so on. And they had to go to Manchester on the Saturday to win for the title. This is Borsa, fully pro team. But on the way up, they played little old Brunel um, on the Friday night on on the way up. Uh, I mean, and damn me, we beat them, Um, which meant that the game... In, on the Saturday, I think in Manchester um, hurt their chances. Yeah, I think it, it might have cost them the league actually. Uh, but that I remember a couple of points maybe they they pressed us at the end and we ran a press very simple press Mate Martin Walters makes a layup. People swamped the floor. All the students from Brunel would come out for games with those ridiculous duck whistles because <laughs> we, we were called, we were called the Brunel ducks. For God's sake! But uh, they came running on the floor. Uh, it was it was mayhem. Um, again, we should we shouldn't have run it. But it was. I think that's really when really it clicked to me that that you know, he, the in basketball you've got the same access to the fundamentals of the game. You've got the same strategies and tactics and so on. And there are as many ways to coach this game as there are coaches almost. So it's about finding finding a way of playing. How do you maximise what you've got, minimise what what they have? Uh, and and I think that that's when it clicked. It clicked for me, uh, and the team in those days we used to have a team of the year and the Brunel. Although we we made the playoffs and got tongued in the uh, who did we? I think we we played Kingston, I think, and got beaten pretty badly. But we weren't expected to even be in the playoffs. But uh, I mean for ironically they got you know the team we were voted team of the year and when you think about the teams that were around at that time and i i was coach of the year which is very flattering but i credit coach dunning for that a lot as well because he was terrific he he was more than an assistant you know yeah, um coach was was real was a really good uh, good guy to have you,
1: you um you said there that you, you you think about kind of like uh, the sort of the roster that you have uh, and then sort of the way that you can play. When, when it comes to sort of the start of the season, when you're talking about recruiting players, are you recruiting players that were going to fit in the style that you want to play? Or do you recruit the roster first and then adapt your style of play and kind of the way you're going to play based on the players and assets you have?
0: No, I mean, that's a fascinating thing. If you are in a situation I guess some American colleges are actually where you can recruit to a philosophy if you're in that situation great I mean going back to UNLV Tarkanian was that he would recruit athletes that could do do things but no I I, I don't believe that I, I I think this the art of coaching the skill of coaching is having a group of players and yeah you would like you would like guys guys that um play the way you want to you you know you you'd like to play but i think the skill of coaching is maximizing what what you have in other words adjusting your coaching style you know if you can't extend then don't extend you know if you can't play 90 feet don't don't play 90 feet if offensively you know offense isn't equal opportunity uh, in in my book you know if if you can't if one two three guys can score in particular areas then get them the ball in in those areas uh, it's a percentage uh, it's a game of percentages isn't it and uh, I, to me it's a, that's the coaching art i think is is um, you know b- being able to being able to recognize assess what you have versus what they have what the op- op- opponent has and i mean i would even change things um offensively um, i'll give you can i just give you one example yeah. uh, I, I don't want to bore you for instance we're in the league and um, i can remember teams that uh who ran the break really well ran ran what well, people call it transition I, I like call it conversion from defense to offense and you know you could yeah, quite often they relied on a point guard, you know, on, a, on an outlet to a point guard and running it down the floor. So offensively, you can influence that. You can put the, the one thing you can do when when another team's playing man for man defense is you can dictate where they go on the floor. So we would I would run their point guard down to the baseline offensively. Our point guard wouldn't be in the backcourt because that's where he wanted to be, the defensive point guard. So, we would put, I would put, uh, run him down the back. Now, my, often I'd argue with point guards on my teams. I remember saying, uh, you know, they'd say, well, no, I I need to be out in the backcourt. I'll pressure the ball out in the back. Well, no, I want you here. Now you look at conversion, which, or transition, which is more important to the outcome of the game, both ways. What you do going back and what you do going forward is more important, in my opinion, than what you do in the half in the half court, either offensively or defensively, you look at how the influence that that has on a game. So I suppose that's that that's an example, and that that's pure learning from Bobby Knight. I mean that that uh, there's no
1: question about that. So after your stint with Brunel, that was uh, after that 86 to 89 was your involvement with the England senior senior men's program. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you kind of talk about sort of the teams that you're involved with, your experiences with the national team, obviously some, some standout games. Um, you know, we know you played Turkey, Greece, uh, and then sort of some of the players on the team are former podcast guests that, that I've spoken to. Um, you know, Paul Stimson, Mickey Bet. Um, yeah. Can you, yeah, kind of? Do you remember the, the the first time you got the call um, to sort of coach the England senior how, men? How that made you feel? I guess that perhaps the honour that you, that you felt representing your country, and then sort of uh, your involvement with the England program, and how that was uh, when you compare it to sort of your experiences with the national league.
0: Yeah, I, I, good times, bad times. I think would be the way I'd sum that up. I think, um, and I actually did. You know, I looked at, I heard Paul and uh, and um, Mickey talking about some things. There, he, here's the, the the thing. But I, I got a call. I was quite surprised, actually. I, I didn't even know why they were going to change the previous coach. But I, I got a call on, I think it was a Sunday morning, actually, I remember, and um, was offered the, the, the chance to coach. I'd always wanted to coach at the highest level I could, at the at the elite level. So it, it, it was a flat-out honour. But, and here's the but, it was at a time when... Uh, the dual national passport player you know was becoming more and more prominent and there were I remember terrible conflicts and in my own mind because I were were these guys playing for the name on the front of the jersey you know the those sort of things and and I was really inexperienced I'd had a sharp learning curve no question I felt technically able uh, um, to do it but um, it was those those um uh decisions about uh you know which players to 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 select some of those selection decisions and i made one or two really bad mistakes we uh, looking back you know i absolutely accept that but but equally um uh there were some uh all right we had some dual nationals but we had the same preparation problems as almost still exists today, which is uh, disappointing. And I think you can only play to your talent level if you can't prepare, if you, if you can prepare then, but it isn't just a question of preparation, but uh, in terms of memorable things, I think um, in the end, um, we went to, to Turkey for the qualification um, uh, round to get into the semi-final round. Now we'd never won the, qualification tournament. We were in a pool with Turkey, Sweden, Scotland, and England. And we were, frankly, the, the two also runs, we expected, I think, to go home, you know, and Sweden and Turkey to um, qualify. And um, as it turned out, you know, we beat uh, Scotland. We beat Sweden, who were, were actually, I, I loved their team and I loved the way they played. But nevertheless, we we um, we beat them. And we ended up in a situation where we were playing Turkey in Istanbul in an arena that used to be where bear fighting went on It was concrete stand you know concrete they were all standing the crowd they were not seats they were all standing on these concrete terraces it was it was pretty pretty frightening but anyway um, I remember before the game the I shook hands with the Turkish coach and I think the deal was that they had to beat us by four to qualify. I'm pretty sure we were either going to win or come second and we would qualify having beaten Sweden. And so he shook my hand and then held on to it and pulled me in and he said, "Uh, Coach, um, maybe we both qualify. So that was my introduction to international basketball, you know, so now as we throw the game, they qualify, we qualify. I think that was the inference. But anyway, it was fantastic. I remember preparing that game and and again, changing what we were going to do defensively um, and hanging it and hanging on when when they were making a run. Their guards were really real good, you know, um, making a run. But uh, as you, I think you've been told before, you know, Dave Gardner ends up on the free throw line. My memory is that he was hit just below the eye because I think he had a cut just below the eye. He makes the first free throw and then gets hit. And the interesting thing from, from a coaching point of view was then he walked towards halfway line looking over to the bench, sort of his eye, and it was beginning to bleed. And of course, as a coach, I had the option of replacing a, a free throw shooter uh, through injury. And I had Paul Stimson on the bench, just an incredible um, shooter, you know, free throw shooter, particularly his percentages were ridiculous. So I'm thinking, and then Dave taught me, here we go, another lesson. Dave looked across to me and waved his hand. No, no, let him. He was angry, obviously. He went back to the line and just drained it, absolutely drained it. And then, and they're all our memories. <laughs> Sort of riot police, and uh, there were sticks. I've got, I've got video of it. There are sticks, stones, coins, um, all sorts coming down, uh, raining down, and the the noise, the whistling, and the noise was deafening. And we had to go through a tunnel. And as we go to the tunnel, I'm behind Colin Irish, who's who's a big boy (laughs) bigger than me, and they're punching him in the neck. They're leaning over the thing. It was it was good times, bad times. As they say we get in the changing room. We're sitting around there. I was thrilled, obviously, because we're going to the semi finals of the Euro- European Championships. You know, I, I, I was just thrilled and um, the wonderful wonderful players that uh, that I had, great guys I had, and we're there and then a brick. We're in the changing room and a brick. Fortunately, it had bars on the on the window a brick hits the the window smashes it where close to where the showers were i'm pretty sure we were held in the changing room for some you know uh, maybe it seems like to me now an hour and then we needed sort of white helmeted police to to uh, escort us back to the hotel which was you know across uh, across the road where the the swedish coach uh, met me a smashing guy i don't even remember his name now but he was a great guy and uh was very appreciative of me because of course they qualified in second place wow. and turkey are like 14th or 15th in the world now um and of course the other game was uh, the other stand-up was um, i mean we beat germany for the first time ever first time we'd ever done that um because after we qualified we suddenly had the association um, contact me. They were suddenly getting a rash of invitations to go and play these sort of much more higher ranked teams. I mean, I'll give you an idea. We, we went to, we played China, Greece. I made a note here. Greek, uh, I'll tell you about the Greece game. Germany, Spain, Holland, Czechoslovakia, who we beat. Again, having, uh, you know, beaten them once before Finland, Hungary, Belgium, Turkey, Iceland, who GB lost to, you know, uh, fairly recently. We beat them actually coached by uh, Laszlo. Laszlo Numbers would coach them at the time until he did such an incredible job with England and the USSR were out in Lithuania playing in a tournament with China, Russia. Oh, I think they were the USSR then and um well it was like a pan american select a uh, american team um i think I, i'm not quite sure how they but i'm I, i'm there and there's Gomorski the russian coach and uh, some famous players famous uh, guys but so that came after us qualifying so we got all of these these invites um but i think the the the, the greek game really on the one hand, I've got really fond memories from because we 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 were beaten out there. We played them the first game after they became European champions. They beaten Russia in the European champions, so we beaten them in '81, I think. England had uh, in an historic win um, under Vic Ambler. And uh, but then the next few years, they got very, very good. And then they won the European championships. And so we're going out to play them in Greece and their European champ, the first game and I'm afraid we were slightly embarrassed out there. So we put the ball on the floor too much, all all of those of things. So we came back, I got a basketball, I ripped it open, stuffed it with, with rags, taped it up. We practiced at Crystal Palace. No dribble in in preparation for the home game. Greek television. All the advertising at Crystal Palace was Greek. Was Greek. The place was packed. It was carried live on Greek television. They didn't have Gali, the the um, the, uh, the the guard, so they were slightly slightly weakened they still had they still had own and players that were, you know fringe nba and so on and you who coaches in the uh euro league now and um i always remember a ball screen and um uh, uh jeff jones comes off in knocks a jump we're up at half time against the european champions and uh i'm thinking you know seriously we we should we can win this. We really can win this. For um, who was guarding Mike Spade, wouldn't wouldn't come out of the keys. So Mike was shooting from outside, making shots. You know, um, and actually we we had shots that rimmed and stuff. That so if they had gone down, we we, we would have won. But uh, in the second half, there was a three minute period. I always remember it, where Inaikos, um, um very talented guard, kind of took the game took the game over uh, it was amazing actually um disappointing from our our point of view but um I'm not I could you know i my, I'm thinking it was about an eight points something like that I don't know whether you've looked at the record book but I don't, it was I don't something have it. like that but it was a close it relatively uh, uh, close loss um but on selection I've got regrets I don't want to embarrass the uh, player but I made one terrible mistake. Um, I wrangled over it. I remember long burning the midnight oil with um, with Dave, with Dave Ransom. And, and I really regret that uh, I didn't include a certain player who's become an absolute legend in the game in, in in that team. But I guess, you know, all experiences are, are learning experiences. So that period and then um, I get a letter from the association saying that um, this was after Turkey saying that the results were some of the best ever achieved by England. Very flattering, very, very, uh, very uh, rewarding, very nice, you know, but then I end up uh, meeting with them, uh, with them uh, about the future and there was absolutely no plan, no, no plan for extra resources, no, the, the program, we would be continuing the way we'd continue, that we had had, you know, no training or well, very little preparation time, meeting at airports and going out to play. And I was uh, I, it was more important to me at that time, not not just being the England coach. It was more important to me that, that, that the program would go somewhere. You know, we were on the way up. That was my feeling at the time. Um and I, I resigned. I, I just, you know, I, I just, disappointingly couldn't, couldn't, uh, uh, you know, I, I just didn't, didn't feel that uh, it was going in the, in the right direction. I mean, fortunately after that, even greater talent was brought in, and we, and we, again, England did okay. And this was all before the GPE stuff. You know, I've gone on a bit.
1: No, no, that's, that's, no, it's perfect. Super interesting. <laughs> um, the. So, so after after that, you come back. That was you did a you did a year of Thames Valley, was it a year? No, more than a year. Uh, sorry, four no, years.
0: A couple, yeah, a couple. Of, uh, I was around back to the commercial thing. I I was much more. I I couldn't coach properly there. I, I mean, I I was back. They wanted a the commercial side run, yeah. and it was the salary cap, and the owner was absolutely every penny you know uh, so it was tough but um i i, I didn't um, i was the wrong guy in, in that situation this was in the bbl as
1: well right in the bbl yeah yeah so this yeah. would have been your first experience in the bbl uh because yeah, BBL so would have I, be formed uh, in 87 ra- ra- so uh, yeah actually
0: rather than the forerunner yeah,
1: yeah. exactly how, how do you yeah. think the bbl compared obviously being your first experience sort of uh yeah with this newly formed league that had been from a you know, a bunch of clubs that wanted to break away and sort of be more in control of their own destiny, as, as Bob Hope always put it. How did you find yes. um, sort of the league? Did you did you find it had it, it done the things that they wanted it to do in terms of um, increasing the professional professionalism of the game um, and increasing the level of it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was of course early days, um, clearly,
0: um, but yeah, I thought um, I thought. I, I, it was inevitable to compare it with what had happened in the eighties, but I, yeah, I, I, I thought it was, um, it was quite exciting because there was devolution, you know, and I was involved in some of those early meetings that I remember Bob talking, Bob Hope talking about you know where the clubs were, how how everything could run, uh, but yeah, from a from a technical level, um, I, I, I think I think we must have come third or something in the in the second year. I, I, it was all a bit of a blur for me at that time, but. Uh, the standard was 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 good, uh, was good, and was clearly included. But the 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 um, I think uh, Kevin, you know, Cadel's group at um, at Kingston, um, I think they they were uh, shining lights in the in the team. You know, the quality of that of that group was uh, terrific, and the way they played. And you know, in terms of coaching, you think about Kevin, uh, and and you know, I think leadership was as much a part of his. Um, talent
1: as, as X's and O's, you know. And so after Thames Valley, um, it was the where Rebels, the, the sort of the junior, the junior program. Now, now, yeah. Obviously, it was very successful. It was where you where you had your first undefeated season. I, I feel like, um, you know, when I speak to various people, when they talk about sort of legendary junior programs, where is where goes under the radar a little bit uh, from that radar yeah, from that era compared to sort of you know the London Towers and your East London Royals and uh, sort of I guess the the, the more sort of London based clubs. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things I sort of noted that you said about uh, that period with Ware is that it sort of um, confirmed your beliefs that you had around sort of junior development um, and everything around that. Can you kind of explain sort of that experience, uh, what it did for you, and, and why you decided to sort of go into focus on the juniors um, after, I guess, previously having been more heavily involved with, with senior programs?
0: Yeah, um, it it was uh, it was a bit cathartic, I think, after Thames Valley. But I was really interested in um, what was happening in in junior in junior ball, and, and yeah, as you say, these programs, you know, London big big city programs sort of thing, and and where and where that was going. And uh, and going back to the idea of realizing the potential of groups, I, I you know, there were a bunch of kids in the where area you know which wasn't wasn't very big and we were going up against those teams i think some of them had longevity which is why you hear more more about them too. I, i'm not down down to denigrate them at all but um but the wear program it was both technically really interesting because i could use um the read and react stuff or you know offensively and we weren't particularly athletic i think i think we would uh we'll put it uh we'll put it that way but but um uh there was uh, they developed an understanding game and i took them from 14 years old from 14 to 18 years uh, to 18 years old i took a, a group which pretty much stayed the same from there to there um and you know uh yeah by by the I think it was the third year that we had the um we had the undefeated year you know um, and we were beating um we were beating these teams Manchester and the london uh you know the London teams this, I think at that time it was under seventeen and under nineteen as as I recall um but that unde, that undefeated season uh, and the titles um that we won i think I think for me, it just illustrated that again, so many different ways to uh, to coach the game, um, and uh, you know the final um, against London Towers with um, with dear Joe Joe Wide, who I admired you know enormously, and of course Garbs Tony Tony Garbetta was coaching, but we 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 had a, a just a fantastic final four playoffs there, and we ended up playing playing um, London Towers with some, you know, that Olu and a lot of talent. And I just looked at, you looked at them and you looked at us, it was a a bunch of kids. Um, But, you know, we played the way I like to play and uh, we won one by five. It was the closest game we'd had all year. Um, But we, you know, we won by five. And then the following year, Um, we were able to include dunkel ogilvy you know um uh, who's got on in in the lineup because of the age situation and and he trained with us in the in that year um and we again you know we ended up winning the we kind of we kind of dominated under 17 i think although we didn't meet london towers regularly in the league sort of thing but we won all the other things and then in the uh these the the yeah the under 19 years, so to speak, we beat um, a Jack Majewski, t- He had a, he had a wonderful team, um, really really good kids. Um, was that his and, Ealing side? Yes the, yes it was Ealing. Tornadoes. Yeah, um, uh, and Jack is a great character, great motivator, and those boys. Goodness me! He had some some names that went
1: on, you know, to, to play. And, who were um, some of the names that of those players that that, that you were bringing through? Obviously, Lloyd Gardner was, was one of them. Who GB yeah. went on to GB assistant, obviously most recently coaching London City Royals. Who were some of the other players that were part of that group that, that you coached all the way through?
0: Well, I think um, the, the I mean the guy I quote is Lee Lee Miles, who is um, now in Australia and coaching. So he's still involved in, you know he's involved in game he was a great soccer player would have been a soccer player but i picked him up for a tryout once and in st albans where he lived and um you know he he was both he and lloyd i think for the the standards and then of course duncan doogie we call him um when he came in he made a um a, there was another lad um danny uh beaston uh, who's a a, a a big kid who was, I say, predominantly local. I, I, I'm i not sure. I think about nine of them were at the same school, which, uh, needless to say, won the school's championships, you know. <laughs> but uh, um, it, it just proved to me that you could take a group. You could take a group of young players and, and, and find a way to play that suited them. We certainly couldn't go down the floor, you know. Um, but I also had a responsibility to expose them to... The, what they might go on to do so I had to expose them about you know breaking down zones and and how to play we changed defenses uh, and we we ran a break but of course Lloyd Lloyd was a already by that time was
1: a pretty impressive point guard so so after you'd done where those you did your stint with England juniors as well right yes yeah how was that? And then, you know, of course, one of the one of the names that you coached was Drew Sullivan. Uh, who, yeah. whenever I ask people who they uh, to name sort of the, some of the top British junior players that they remember, Drew's name consistently comes up as one of the greatest junior players they, they've ever seen. Kind of, what was he like as a talent? What was it like to coach him? And I guess um, sort of wrapping up with your, your kind of experience with with the England juniors as well.
0: Well, I I'd, I'd had two spells. I'd had a previous spell way back okay well i went went to manheim with um i think morris wordsworth was okay. the was the coach and we were playing we played against an american team with some like uh, i think five of them ended up in the nba you know <laughs> that sort of thing but anyway uh but this uh, but again very disappointing there was no resource available for that junior team but we did go to a tournament out in in belgium and um uh, which the England team had gone to, and it was the first time I really hooked up with Mark Lloyd uh, Lloydy, whose dad John Lloyd, had been my England senior men team manager, and I met with is a lifelong friendship now with, with Lloydy. he was he flat out probably the best team manager, well not probably he is the best international team manager this country's ever had, I think, with all due respect to everybody else um but um we, we, and we went out to Belgium. And I remember um, Drew being on that, uh, on that team. And they, we got to the final. We played a Belgian team. I can't remember who, who they were. But uh, we, we played a Belgian team anyway in the final. And uh, they had run. They'd beaten everybody pretty well. We we ended up winning by a margin. And the, the game was broken open by Drew, who, you know, could play around the bucket but he came down i think on three consecutive breaks pulled up on the three point line and i'm looking at the floor thinking -ah." you know the classic and he just knocked down just knocked down these shots and i realized that you know um well i didn't realize i think i pretty much knew he could play anywhere on the floor you know um so talented i'd had to coach against him uh, going back in the in the day in the at in the junior level, the very young level, fourteen year old level, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: Fortunately, I think he went to the states. <laughs> we, we saved us, you know. But he he was wonderful. I'm terrible with names. I, I you know the, there were other players on that yeah. uh, on that team, you know. But yeah, but Drew was the standout, no question.
1: But so, no resources. Yeah. England, again, no absolutely common theme. Zero, a common theme. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Great Britain Wheelchair Basketball Association, and being involved with with wheelchair basketball, and obviously that 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 represented quite a switch. Well, I I assume like how different <laughs> do you find it is, you know, coaching um, wheelchair basketball in, in comparison to able bodied basketball. Uh, what made you decide to kind of make that jump? And of course, you know, some of the experiences you had with them, oh. uh, Paralympics, and winning medals, and and everything else. Of course, I feel like the Success of the, the Great Britain wheelchair basketball team is is pretty underrated because um, they've been an absolute powerhouse uh, for years. But, absolutely. Yeah, can you kind of talk about that that sort of transition yeah. for you and, and your involvement with them? I'd absolutely agree with
0: that. Um, and now let me say straight away that I, I remember what when, the way it happened was I had a player that I'd coached as junior, Tony Woolard, uh, sadly passed now, but he he. Um, he was in a terrible. He played able-bodied basketball. He, he was in a terrible uh, motorbike accident, very badly injured. And anyway, um, they, they uh, the wheelchair GB team were fantastic. You know they'd done really well, and then there was a bit of a slide for whatever reason. I, I don't. I don't really know the background, but they were sliding outside of. Uh, they'd been a Europe, They'd won a European Championship medal and got world-class performance funding uh, from the lottery. And then they were sliding out um, of the top end. And anyway, he called me, he was on the committee and asked whether I would apply that and, you know, interview process to be the Great Britain head coach of the Paralympic team uh, before Sydney, coming up to Sydney. I had never, I'd rarely seen wheelchair basketball, um, let alone coached it. I hadn't coached it. And initially, um, I must say, some of some coach, some people around coach were a little bit sniffy, you know, about it, um, which was disappointing because it was a life-enhancing period for me. Um, because the uh, uh, once he I, I got the job, and I suddenly realised that I saw nothing but the similarities. First of all, you know, the baskets were the same height, the the floor was the same size, the ball was the same, everything was the same. But when I got involved with it, I spent three months studying the game. The first thing I did was just study the game for three months, day in, day out. And then, of course, I realized all of the differences. But particularly at the international level, it's a fantastic game. I I could not believe some of what, you know, when I looked at teams like Canada and America, Australia, they were, I mean... You sat side uh, on the court sideline and you just stopped seeing the chairs. I mean, it just it was just incredible to me. But th- th- it was very restrictive. Clearly, you know, you didn't teach footwork. You teach chair work, how how to do things. And and of course, there were there were differences. So I I we w- we were going to go to uh, Sydney. That's what they I had a nine month contract. Um, they had world class performance funding. And I say it now, but though that period, I think it was about eight years, I was part of world-class performance programs, which GB able-bodied or or able-bodied would have died for. You know, I could look at practice, at, um, uh, you know, how to create world-class environments, performance environments, from the best in the world. I could look around because I I was still looking at able-bodied. In fact, I... Ended up still coaching everybody at Reading. But uh, I, it, it's purely selfish, but I had to learn it in order to write the world class performance plan and to get the, the continual funding. But I always remember that we went to Sydney um, for the uh, nine months after I first walked into Lillichool to the training camp, never coached the game, sort of thinking, what am I going to do? I've never coached a game. I had a great assistant coach who, who really taught me everything. And um, we went to, we we prepared, and I, and I tried to professionalise what they were doing. That was the key problem. They, that Even though they had all the funding, um, you know, the guys were very few guys from, there was only one guy with any sort of um, background in able-bodied basketball. So um, I felt that they, the whole thing needed, uh, there needed to be a whole change of um, environment let's say so I try to professionalize everything and introduce standards that we wouldn't fall below and all this sort of thing Um, so we did that in a very short time and just unbelievable I pushed them some of the things were just outright cruel I mean you know we'd be up at 6am at Lillishaw pushing a two mile hill Um, the kids the guys in before breakfast you know um, and then we would have train all day I mean, some of the demands, physical physically, that that we made were unbelievable. But they rose to it; they absolutely rose to it. Talk about triumph over adversity, you know, unbelievable. So we go to Sydney and we end up in the in the uh, we we'd lost to teams, you know, we'd have pre-season games against Germany and Australia and all, and we'd lost to them quite a lot of them. But we I changed some things anyway. We get to Sydney and we end up in the. In the bronze medal game and UK sport had said you've got to win a medal medal at the Paralympics for your world-class funding to continue medal you know money in medal out that was the formula um, so we're, we're there and we're we miss a layup with a few seconds left in the game to win it against um, the USA and they get the ball to just over the halfway line and Schultz, a guy called Schultz throws it up from there and he goes in and he makes a shot from there, from a chair. It, it just, unbelievable. 19,000 people watching the game in Sydney on the same floor where the Dream Team had played, you know. Anyway, he makes the shot. So we we come forth and that's not good enough you know uh, we think but anyway long story short we we get back to england i'm thinking that's the end of my contract you know and um uk sport come back and said well great britain clearly has potent- has podium potential i think was the way they put it so uh, from then on we rolled our sleeves up and uh, um you know i i just learned every day in that in that job i mean just the, just the the wonderful opportunities that I had to learn from programs around the world, and also to learn and to respect the the, the wheelchair game. Um, and frankly, you know what GB have done. They've now gone on. They're dominant in the world now. Uh, have an unbelievable coach, um, a great coach, completely different coaching style to my own. Um, but it, they're incredible. And in my period, we then went on, and um, we had. um, we won we went to the world championships it was a wonderful experience uh, got a silver medal you know we won the bronze in athens played the most beautiful game of wheelchair basketball um we were we, we were up there in the top 3 or 4 all the time you know with with australia and uh, canada canada were particularly dominant at this period and then in the paralympic world cup um we played australia in the final and this was kind of like the end for me really well, I mean, I stayed on a little while longer, but um, and we played Australia and um, we made a shot from near the halfway line to go into overtime. And then Adi Deputan, who's well known now as a TV presenter particularly, but he was an excellent wheelchair player, wheelchair basketball player, makes two free throws at the end of overtime um, to win. Uh, to, to, you know, to uh, uh, win the, the Paralympic World Cup. So, uh, get the gold medal. And, and actually, I should say that the loss in Sydney to the Americans, we ended up playing them in the quarterfinals in Athens against the Americans. Can you believe? And we beat them. And I just broke down and cried. You know, wow. um, wow. Adi Deputan makes two free throws. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, amazing. And the uh, thousands watching the games. Yeah, massive stadiums.
1: Unbelievable. What do you think you were able to take from uh, that experience, which you were then able to bring back to able-bodied basketball, which kind of I guess improved your coaching or helped you as a coach? Um, two main things. Because of course, originally I thought I could bring
0: able-bodied ideas into which I did to a certain extent into the wheelchair game. But I think, um, I think it was the first time, um, I under- really truly understood about excellence, about what it takes to create, um, winning environments that, that was, uh, really helped inform me. And I think, um, of course I learned an awful lot about disability and uh, th- those sorts of things, but in terms of going back to, um, you know, to, um, able body coaching, um, um, well, actually, of course, I was. There was a period out there. I was coaching both. I was yeah. coaching reading, which I know we're going to talk about. But, um, but I think it was creating the environment and um, uh, leadership. Because it doesn't matter what you could be coaching. Canadian log rolling, you know, if you if, if you understand the process. Yeah, I think those are the two things.
1: So, let I'm aware of time here. So, the, the yeah, I'm we sorry, to, I'm... we have to talk about is is the the reading undefeated season. Um... Which was what? Was it two thousand eight, two thousand um, nine? Eight nine, yeah. Yeah, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You won everything that was, which was a quadruple. Yeah, quadruple. Yeah, there were four. Yeah. Um, th- was it thirty six? No, over the course of, over the course of the year, kind of, what your memories of that season? Um, sort of going into it, what were your expectations? You know, was it something that you'd set as a target, or were you pleasantly surprised as the season went on? <laughs> um, kind of, yeah. How did it? How did it all play oh, out? I, I think the latter. You know, the the one thing
0: that uh, my time at Reading was terrific because the one thing there was the Johnson, Matt Johnson and Gary uh, Johnson, um, who ran the club, they had an understanding about coaching. And, you know, if I were a club owner now, I would, I would, the first position I'd fill would be the head coach who understood leadership, you know. But um, that year, that particular year, I felt when we recruited Tintin Watts, um uh, and I saw him practice I, I knew we could be competitive we we didn 't have the the best i don 't think we had the best roster in the in in the league to be absolutely frank we had a really good roster and it was bolstered. We had five or six senior players and it was bolstered with with matt 's um junior um uh, program players you know um but we had you know um we had wallid but you know Mamouni. Uh, a couple of really, really good um, uh, Americans that kind of complemented each other. But uh, I, again, it, 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 was, it was a culmination, if you like, of the previous six or seven years. We'd gone up, you know, we'd won something every year. Um, but so much was about the creating the environment in terms of practice and so on that I'd learned from my time on the World Class Performance Programme uh so yeah obviously as the year went on we won games games in overtime i think we won games from the free throw line we won um we had injuries you know Tintin was hurt i remember in one very big game but we we found a way that sort of thing um but but most of all it solidified i think um the 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 challenge of maximizing your talent maximizing what you have that sounds really pious and slightly big headed but uh, uh, but i but i think that that's what i i learned from that um but i i was and the other great thing about it was i just coached i my whole time at reading they just wanted me to coach and develop the program so i had no commercial responsibilities and they were fantastic for that
1: yeah. And the other thing is the, the your season in, in Worthing, um, in the BBL, uh, yeah. two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So what was that? That was so that would have been the the season after you went undefeated with Reading. Yes, you, yeah. you decided to leave. Was, was that a des- your decision? You wanted to leave and then sort of coaching the BBL or like kind of? Yeah, h- yeah. How did that there, come there about? Was,
0: yeah, yeah. know there was a, a big element of that. I sort of felt. And again, slightly, um, I don't know, uh, uh, slightly getting getting above myself a little here, but I sort of felt, well, I wanted a new challenge, yeah. you know, that uh, really uh, we'd run everything. Yeah. Go out on top, yeah. There was an element of that. I loved the Worthing Club anyway from being down there. They'd had one year in the BPL B- and uh, I think, you know, it struggled a little bit. And a number of people they were interviewing for it and um, so I thought i would i would go you know i would I would give it a try and and see, see what I could bring to them um and again there there's a management that understood the you know the value of the of of coaching and um and in the end um it was <laughs> I mean, an interesting team, you know, <laughs> to have Reggie Bratton and KD and uh, Finnish guy Ville and, uh, and some other guys. But um, uh, we ended up, i uh, uh, kind of disappointed in, in a sense. I was expecting, um, I think we had the second lowest budget. And, and that's not, I'm, I'm not, uh, that's not uh, sort of um, any criticism of because it was a wonderful club. Um and wonderful people and they treated me really well. But we ended up beating every team in at least once in the BBL, and in fact beating Newcastle twice. They absolutely whipped our behinds in the playoffs. <laughs> you know, I think there was a element of revenge there, but we 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 did after all beat them twice. Uh, close games, both games. And the only team we lost to was Tony Garps' team at Everton, um, and he, he 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 did such such a terrific job, uh, just out coached the hell out of me, you know, in that, in those games. So, anyway, um, uh, it 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 was an experience that that uh, I didn't go, I couldn't go back. I mean, the travel was a big issue because I was still living in Hemel. The plan was Lynn and I were seriously thinking of re- relocating to the South Coast, um, but in the end. I, um, I didn't, I don't know, I just, the the league, the league seemed to be more and more composed of, of imports of one kind, you know, one kind or another. I know there was some British talent in there as well, obviously, but um, it was kind of. It was a little bit disappointing as as a as an experience I think, um, but the the high obviously the the Newcastle games, but we had to go to Plymouth at the end of the season down and of course fantastic atmosphere and all that stuff down there and it was actually Gary's last game, strong's last game, and um, one of, again one of those games we're down and we set up some trap or whatever anyway we come out with the ball and Reggie knocks it down and we. We end up going into overtime we don't go to the playoffs unless we win it, and we ended up winning it we beat, We win it going away seven eight nine points, so we're going to the playoffs and could look forward to the thrashing at uh <laughs> newcastle you know so but again, just a, a a great experience because of the people and the players um who I loved you know they yeah. they they were all very good with me, yeah.
1: And then to kind of your, your, the last, the last uh, sort of club stint of your career uh, was with Hemel, Hemel Storm. Um, yeah. I guess kind of almost going back to the same sort of place where it, where it all started, coming full circle. Um, exactly. Uh, how, how was that kind of, I guess, to, to, to round out your, your time with clubs um, and how do you look back on your, your time with Storm? It was across Division 2 and Division 1, right?
0: Yeah, I, I, I thought we would give it a go. You know, it was 2010 and uh, it was 17 years or something since, since basketball had been there or longer. And um, so uh, we were in Division... There was a franchise um, that, that we were able to move to Hamill, Division 2. I On a personal level, I was getting to the point where I was more interested in mentoring than, than in, uh, actually the week-in, week-out coaching. But nevertheless, I I wanted us to get back to division one. So we had a first year in division two and I coached that. And then the second year we won promotion um, into uh, division one Uh, and then um, a year in division one. But by now we were really looking to um, I I was anyway, I was I I was really looking to step away. Um, I did towards the end of it have some health issues. I'm diabetic and I. You know, i had some issues with my eyes um so i think um you know the coaches we brought other um coaches in but now of course i mean last year was terrific i mean there are a lot of good people there running the club and i and i sort of i sort of uh, draw, drawn a line sort of under that i, I i'm much more involved now in, in mentoring um but at least it's still being played it's now being played back in You know, back in Hamel at a decent level, so uh, yeah, there was definitely a feeling of coming full circle. But I, you know, I really think that once once I've got, we won promotion and uh, we'd won a couple of patrons' cups and we'd gotten gotten them into the first division. It was almost a case of me think looking around and thinking, well, you know, um, I I love working with other coaches and and, in this mentoring type of role. Uh, at that time, I, I actually oil paint, so I had other interests uh, looming. Um, so I think that that uh, it, it's left in a really good state, uh, and and it's going to it's going to grow now.
1: So let's talk about your involvement with the game now. Like you said, kind of obviously you you retired, but you're you're, you're taking up a mentoring role with, with other coaches. What exactly does that involve, and I guess who who are you mentoring? Oh, it's it's really informal. I'm not sure that <laughs> there's some GB guys.
0: Uh, Um, that I'm talking with um, uh, and also um, I've just done a presentation to all the east region uh, coaches but it's all it's all sort of obviously with the current situation and I'm I guess I'm in that high-risk group um, so I've been self-isolating for quite some time Um, so a lot of it's done you know on the phone or Skype or whatever Uh, uh, and I, I I'm talking to to coaches, um, and I just get calls, like or, or emails, or, or I'd love to sit down and have a coffee. Could we sit down and and do that? You know, I know I know I'm due with with uh, with Alan, you know, Alan Keeney, under twenty uh, and twenty coach. I want we want to talk about motion, and uh, uh, but uh, it, it's it's the country needs more and better coaches. That's that's the bottom line. So I've always, uh, always felt that. So while there have been vast improvements, I think, in the technical development and so on, um, if I can help in any way, you know, uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. But, um, you know, there's a new generation of of young coaches now coming through. And I I, I, but I would I'd be always happy to hear from somebody that wants, you know, I, I. i had an email there recently from lee from lee miles who's coaching out in australia you know absolutely fantastic uh, one of my former guys and of course lloyd um, uh, coaching at the well, was coaching obviously in the vbl um but um that's that's the way i feel now I, at 74 i kind of feel i want to i want to um I got a back seat from the day-to-day stuff, but I'd love to go once it's safe. You know, I'd love to go into into programs and maybe you know do a little bit um, on the floor with some coaches, or
1: just work with the coaches in terms of coaching philosophy and and that sort of thing. One of the things that's, that's clear to me is just how important coaches are for the development of the game, and you know it's said yeah. repeatedly just how well. First of all, how, how few we don't have enough. Um, but also then the level of the ones that we do have uh, is not high enough like we, we need to improve the level of coaching we need to Absolutely. better develop coaches um, if you were tasked with you know being being responsible for improving uh, sort of both the quantity and quality of coaches that we have across the UK where would be uh, the places that you would start what, what things would you be looking at putting in places to kind of try and help drive coaching forward
0: well I think the,
1: the first thing is
0: that obviously the European, you know, the coaching badge. The, the well, coaches in Europe generally they have to go through a far more rigorous, far more rigorous um, process, you know, study process than than uh, our guys do. But our guys, you know, we do. You know, let's not shortchange ourselves. Our coaches now developing technical knowledge and so on. Look, we're looking east now more perhaps than we than in my era looking. Uh, looking west but the but i think there's still this evangelical thing at the lower that lower levels but i would i would want eight centers around the country you'd want to put full-time coaches in there you'd want uh coaches that are um that technically are really are really talented and and new and new not not just the X's and O's, but knew the science of coaching, the art of coaching, um, and I do think that that's the progress being made. But but the sports profile, I mean, y- you know, doesn't exactly encourage our coaches are, are are succeeding despite that was that would be my, uh, and it's so disappointing to see, you know, British coaches who are so frustrated with. What they're doing now, obviously, the academy system is fantastic. That's a beginning. We are at the beginning of, of, of coach um, development, but we need to we need to have a GB coaching manual. <laughs> you know, we need. I mean, I wrote one for the GB for the wheelchair uh, game. You know, a coaching manual. Um, but I, I think we need one for for GB uh, for for coaching in this country uh, that's at a level that would get some sort of serious recognition, you know, I mean, they're a they're degree level fever is a you know, some of those things are degree level. You have to, you know, to qualify, you have to do an awful lot of things, you know, uh, in terms of experience and being assessed and so on. But I think, I think that's, that's where I start more and better, uh, and identify, identify people, whether, whatever sport they're involved in, are they a good, good coach? You know, I mean, Dave Brails, you know, the cycling guy, <laughs> look what he did at cycling. And I studied that, incidentally, for environment. But he's a great coach. You
1: know, <laughs> why, why isn't he coaching in, in basketball? Finally, I remember a few years ago you saying you were working on a technical coaching book. Is that is that still something that you, you're, you're hoping to do and, and wanting to publish? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it keeps changing
0: because the games, the games change and it got a little bit anecdotal to be honest with you, you know? Um, uh, and I, I started writing little headings and stuff. And then, and then I started thinking, well, the, you see, the thing about the game technically is that there are so many, there are fads and, and so on. So you could write a book today uh, about positionless basketball, about, about spacing and about the, the influence of, europe in into the nba for instance and you know now the ball screen is is predominant whereas at one stage people didn't like it because it brought defense to the ball all those sorts of things so i think the only way to do it is to say to write something where you have choices you know you say coach look these are the sorts of like you can guard the pick and roll seven ways or something you know i think that were but i mean that's a life's work yeah, I don't know. I've got that long, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. I keep saying I must. I I would. I would like to to uh, to you know. I did a presentation up in uh, for for BE at the beginning of last season, I think it was, and about see about teaching kids to see not just not just the physical aspects, but the importance of it and so on. And I do think there are some things. So maybe an article or two, but I don't know whether uh basketball according to coach titmus will ever
1: will ever make the shelves. <laughs> well if you ever want to well, write an for article for if you ever want to write an article for who's fixed about about coaching bowl means I will more than happily publish it. So uh we should all definitely right, no, yeah. definitely stay in touch on that. Thank you. Coach T, uh, that is awesome. Uh, we've gone almost an hour and forty uh so we'll wrap it up all there. Nice. But yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Super insightful, super enjoyable uh, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate what you're
0: doing, Sam, for the game. Thank you. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos, and more.